welcome to the Wicked Wallflowers Club. I'm Sarah Hawley. And I'm Jenny Nordback. Today I'm here with Carolyn Mackler, a best-selling author of young adult fiction. Her latest release, The Universe is Expanding and So Am I, is a sequel to a book she wrote 15 years ago. We talk about what changed between writing books, why her original book was frequently banned, and how society inappropriately judges the sexuality and identity of young women. Without further ado, here is our interview with Carolyn Mackler. I am here today with Carolyn Mackler. She writes young adult fiction, and her latest release is The Universe is Expanding, and So Am I. Hi, Carolyn. How are you today? Hi, Sarah. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Of course. I'm doing really well. Um, I was fascinated, actually. This is a sequel to a book you wrote 15 years ago, which is kind of fascinating. Yes. What made you decide to follow up on that story? Well, so, uh, yes, it's true. 15 years ago, I published my novel, The Earth, My Butt, and Other Big Round Things. <laughs> and it was a novel I wrote when I was in my 20s. And it just felt like a really important novel to write at that time. It's about a 15-year-old curvy girl in Manhattan named Virginia. And she has this family of sort of skinny, overachieving, fat-shaming mm-hmm. perfectionists. And she, Virginia just feels lousy about herself based on how her family judges her, how her golden child older brother Byron treats mm-hmm. her. And she just feels like she wants to be camouflaged into nothing. And But she does have sexual feelings, and as teenagers as does, tend to yeah. do. <laughs> and so she hooks up with this sort of dorky boy from her school, Froggy, Froggy, after school, <laughs> in her bedroom, and but she's too ashamed to imagine that he would want to be with her in public. She feels mm-hmm. like she needs to, you know, she has a fat girl code of conduct that she has to follow, and part of that is like, if you want sexual interactions, you keep it a secret. Mm-hmm. And then everything changes for Virginia when her older brother is suspended from college. He goes to Columbia University mm-hmm. here in Manhattan. And he's this perfect, overachieving guy. The parents just think think he's all that. And he's suspended from college for a semester for date rape. Mm-hmm. Or it's just rape. It's, you know, no yeah. distinction. And um, he, he um, sort of forces himself on a friend in his dorm, a girl. Yeah. And he's suspended for a semester. And as the family starts to fall apart, Virginia begins to reevaluate everything how they treated her, who her brother is in her eyes. He's on this pedestal. Well, maybe not anymore. And it's a real sort of awakening novel in this way of like, I never knew this about my family. And I never thought that maybe I'm not this kind of lousy wallflower. Maybe I deserve more. Yeah. And Virginia starts to just feel good, celebrate her body as it is, not lose weight, but feel strong. She dyes her hair purple. She gets an eyebrow ring. Mm -hmm. She just starts dressing in ways that feel sexy, not like camouflage beneath a lot of kind of khaki fabric as her mom wants her to. Yeah. And so for me, it was a very important novel to write 15 years ago it was just a feeling good about yourself as you are having confidence to say like I'm here this is me you know I am a you know a sexual imperfect being and I deserve to take up room on this planet and it was just this incredible experience it won a prince honor which is you know the prince is like the highest award you can receive in young adult fiction it was um, also one of the most banned books of the decade after it came out. So that was, was pretty it? intense. Wait, yes. Why did they ban it? Was it because of the rape plot line? Actually, they, no, it was generally because of the sexual content. Virginia, I mean, Virginia but, having sexual feelings. But she didn't actually have sex even. Sex, she didn't even no. get in the pants. Like. No, second base. All wow. you know, in whatever. If we, I realize we don't really do bases anymore, but old school <laughs> second base, which is going up the sh- the girl's shirt, yeah, um, under the bra, you know, feeling the breasts. That and and also, I think she has sexual rumblings. You know, she feels something, you know, between her legs when she's <laughs> rolling around. Yes, tremors, we'll call it. And she, uh, well, when it was banned, it was generally because a parent or a school administrator 
would flip through it and turn to a page where maybe Virginia is hooking up or Mm -hmm. where Virginia is swearing at her brother because he's been an asshole to her her whole life and she's finally saying you know that and then they would say inappropriate language inappropriate sexual content for this age group anti-family you know she stands up to her family interestingly in all of my banning and censorship cases or challenges no one ever mentioned the rape never wow okay so i find this shocking because like she's 15 in the first book right Right. And like that was um, I think my first kiss was maybe a year after that. But I'm certainly thinking about kissing boys. And these are real things. I was reading much more, not much more explicit content, but like I was very aware that sex was a thing people did uh, from a pretty young age. And the, the thought that parents are like, we have to pretend it doesn't exist in a pleasurable way. They're like, fine, if it's like, okay, there's a plot line about how her brother raped a woman. That's fine. But we cannot have this girl. A teenage girl having sexual feelings is very scary. I think it's very intimidating to certain people who want to believe that teenage girls don't have sexual feelings, that they don't want to feel sexual satisfaction and fulfillment, which is not true. And and we can't just pretend it's not there. And that's how you give girls complexes. I know I was definitely raised with a sort of shaming of like, oh, no, this is a horrible, awful, dirty thing. And then you learn about it later. And you're like, oh, no, this is, this is a normal thing human beings do. But right. if, I mean, in the traditional, yeah. like, sort of straight paradigm, it's supposed to be that like the boy wants it and the girl has to resist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my experience as a teenage girl was that I really had sexual feelings and I wanted to fulfill them and I wanted to hook up and I enjoyed it. And I think that's important to have those conversations with boys and girls, but in this case, girls, because you want to say you want this, so how are you going to be safe? You know, yeah. how are you going to protect your body from diseases and assault and mm-hmm. also enjoy yourself? And I think by pretending that a teenage girl doesn't want it. You're not giving her any tools to go into sexual situations, you know, with both empowerment and with with um, language, mm-hmm. you know, and then with like physical tools, condoms, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, whatever, lubricants, spermicide. Go to your GYN, talk to them. I, I just think it's so important to not bury or hide the fact that teenagers have sexual feelings but to say that you know what let's let's acknowledge it and let's talk about how to you know keep you healthy and safe and empowered and to realize this is fun stuff and good Mm -hmm. stuff you know and it's and so I think books are you know my mentor from many years ago and early on has been Judy Bloom and Mm -hmm. she was sort of the novelist I read growing up when I wanted to read a novelist who wrote about true teenagers and their sexual desires and she's also been heavily challenged as an author and she would always say you know books are easy targets mm-hmm. to book banners or to, to challenge censors and to people who want to sort of quote unquote protect teenagers books are easy targets because movies video games you know you can kids sort of squirrel away in their rooms and play them go over to friends houses but you see your child reading a book and you're like oh let me see that yeah let you're like what's it. the cover i'm gonna right But kids binge watch, you know, Netflix, they watch shows that, you know, I have a son who just finished eighth grade and he was just telling me last night, like everyone in his school has binge watched Jane the Virgin. So it's like, okay, so they've certainly seen their share of sexual situations. What a good show, though, for everyone in his school to watch. I love Jane the Virgin. (laughs) I love Jane the Virgin, too. Um, And, you know, when my husband and I were watching um, Call Me By Your Name the other night. Mm Mm-hmm. And my son got home from being out with friends and he came in and he said, what are you guys watching? And we said, call me by your name. He said, oh my gosh. He said, everyone in my school loves that movie. The girls, Aww. so many girls have a crush on Timothy Chalamet. And I was like, okay, so teenagers, young teenagers, you know, we're saying 13, 14, are watching movies and TV shows. Like I mentioned, Jane the Virgin or, or Call Me By Your Name. Those are both ones that I love. And they're watching ones that show young adults and young 20-somethings and adults in sexual situations. Yeah, and sexual awakenings, like Call Me By Your Name would be a perfect opportunity to talk about um, consent and discovering things and, and like, 
age differences and all sorts of things. So they, you're right. Like, these, these kids are getting this content and they're seeing it. And I remember hearing like wild, outrageous things in middle school and having no way to verify if any of it was even like physically possible. And like half of it wasn't because no one else knew what they were talking about either. Right. And but... so I think that then you look at novels like The Earth My Bought and Other Big Round Things or The Universe is Expanding and So Am I. Novels that are written for teenagers about you know, sort of young sexual awakenings that are handled in, I think, really smart ways and empowering and realistic, but nothing that's so heavy or so intense that it would like scare or traumatize a teenager and definitely nothing like more than what they're certainly consuming in their, um, you know, screen time media. Yeah, absolutely. Like this is, this is downright tame compared to what I'm, I'm sure they're consuming elsewhere. And it, it is interesting because the the sort of refusal to let teens even look at anything remotely sexual if the parents have control over it and this idea that like women just have to say no and they can't want it is exactly what contributes to the culture the, of rape, you know, rape culture and why people like her brother Byron don't always know boundaries. And I, I mean, that's all that's complicated. Like you can't always know the motivations of people, but. A lot of boys are also raised on this idea of like they are the instigators and they are the aggressors and women say no because they're taught to say no, but they might not mean it. Right. No doesn't necessarily mean no. Yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think that um, books are, I feel like if, you know, when I was a young teenager and I was really curious about sex and sexual feelings. I definitely feel like I wanted to, I I liked reading it in books because books were a way I could ease in, you Mm -hmm. know, movies and shows are much more in your face. Like this is what this hookup looks like. Exactly. This is the face this person's making as they're feeling pleasure or satisfaction or lust or desire. And it's really intense as a Mm -hmm. young teenager to see that sometimes. I mean, everyone's different. I cannot, I can only speak for myself, but when I read it in a book, I felt like I could envision you know, and you, you know, I know you, right, you, you talk about romance, and I mm-hmm. feel like I loved reading adult romances, and I was really excited to read sex scenes, because I could sort of see what an adult was going through, but sort of filter it through what I knew, but mm-hmm. it felt really safe and a comfortable way to learn into and ease into sexual feelings. Yeah, I wish I'd had romance novels growing up. I didn't read any until college, and then I was convinced that they were like, you know, dirty or not, not proper literature. And then I picked one up. And I was like, oh, actually, like the conversation about consent is happening, especially in recent romances. And you do, if you're uncomfortable with the content, there's such a, a range from like, there's inspirational romances where they only hold hands, you know, and you go all the way up to the really explicit stuff. Uh, but I, I think literature is a wonderful avenue to explore that. Yeah, I, I, I agree completely. And I think that one thing that has really countered the sort of confusion and sometimes devastation of being such a challenged author with the earth my bound of the background things was that over the last 15 years since it came out i have gotten hundreds and hundreds of letters from teen readers adult readers moms of teenage girls saying like thank you for writing this novel the earth my bound of the background things it saved my life this is a novel that it's the first novel I ever read where I saw myself in the pages. Oh. It gave me hope that even though I'm a fat girl, I could, I can feel beautiful. I can allow these sexual feelings. Um, it gave me hope that, you know, I, I, I sought help for depression. I sought help for cutting. I told mm-hmm. my parents about my eating disorder and now I'm seeing a therapist. I told my mom that she can no longer judge my body by her standards. Um, I dyed my hair purple. Oh, I got letters yeah. from mom saying I read this and I had no idea what I was doing to my fat daughter and I will never shame her like this again and we're going to turn over a new leaf starting today. So I've got these letters over the last 15 years and a lot of people, you asked why did I write a sequel after 15 years? A lot of people over the years asked for a sequel and mm-hmm. I always felt like it was done. I got Virginia where I wanted her to go when I wrote this novel in my 20s. And then over the past 15 years, I have grown as a person. You know, I got married. I had these two wonderful boys. I really learned how to become a mom and who I wanted to be and how I wanted to parent these, 
you know, future men. And I also just realized that I could have more in my life. When I wrote that, I was hoping for just like breaking away from who I felt I was and, and the insecurities I had from my own adolescence. And then I realized I could have so much more. You know, I've had this like such a, you know, so I got so many things in my life I didn't think I would ever get like a really satisfying relationship, um, romantic relationship, these amazing kids, you know, a career mm-hmm. that's satisfying, um, confidence in who I am. And so I wanted more for Virginia. And I also wanted more for, I wanted her to have awesome, not just like I'm okay kissing Froggy in public, but I wanted her to have a true love story. Yeah. Like with a really awesome, hunky guy. I wanted her to feel even more confident just being who she is, um, owning her sexual feelings, having a love story. And I also wanted more for her brother. I wanted him to get arrested for the rape. I didn't want him to just get kicked out of Columbia for a semester and then back in college, back on track. Like he raped someone. He took something from her that she'll never get back, which is her sexual safety. And so that's why I returned to... The universe, and I wrote, the universe is expanding, and so am I after all those years. Yeah, well, I loved it. Um, I, Thank you. I thought it was, I think the, the romance is, is really sweet and also complicated for reasons I won't like spoil. <laughs> yeah. But I, I loved Virginia. I think she's just, she's funny, and uh, I really don't She makes all these lists all the time. Um, yes. And like I did that as a teenager, absolutely. I don't know if you did, and that's where you came up with it. Um, did you? Was that was that like a? I, you know, it's funny. I make lists. Like I live by my to do list. I have daily to do lists, and I have to do lists for to do lists, and weekly mm-hmm. to do lists, and writing to do lists, and kid to do lists. So I definitely like itemizing my life. It makes me feel calm and grounded. And you know, I was just on book tour for the last practically month, and on my final plane ride, I just was feeling so anxious, and the flight was delayed eight hours and the plane was bumping and I just got out a notebook and I wrote a list and I just instantly felt better. So I feel like lists just help me. So I feel like with Virginia, she's got this wonderful witty way about her. And so she doesn't just do to-do lists like I do, but she takes these lists and just kind of elevates them to Mm -hmm. an art where she writes like everything going on in her life. And she sort of, you know, meditates on a certain subject like, why you know how a fat girl can have a boyfriend and still be a fat girl um and then we'll sort of write all these humorous sort of riffs on it like what you have to do to keep a boyfriend so i just think that it's her way of managing the world and managing all of her wonderful and creative thoughts i used to make these lists that were kind of laughable in retrospect i tried to find one but i don't have the right journal in my room but they'd be written in like sparkly gel pen and there'd be lists of boys I liked because there was never just one. Of course. <laughs> um, there were like lists of ways to like fascinate and intrigue other people and to be like, and of course they were like, number four, like be a rock star. Cause someone told me like, uh, these are their like lists of how to overcome your awkwardness, you know? And I remember one time the one I wanted to find was that I, I had another list of boys I liked and it was like comically from a YA novel because it was shortly after a list of all the boys I liked that I wrote another one and it just says no one in all caps underlined like five <laughs> times in glittery gel pen because I'd been like slighted by someone that day. So I was like, oh my gosh, I, I identify with this so much. Oh, that's fabulous. Do you still have these lists? I do somewhere. I mean, not not in like my daily life. I'm not so much of a list maker now. Uh, but I have the journals somewhere. I'm like terrified to look back at them because I was a little bit of a, a very dramatic mess uh, in, in my adolescence, well, as I imagine. No, I used to keep lists of all the boys I had crushes on also. And then I would also keep a list in one of my journals that I kept. I think it started in my sophomore year of high school and went on for several years after that. I would keep a list of all the boys I kissed and then I would put a certain star system based on oh what else I did God. with them. <laughs> Wait, you like um, ra- you like rated them? I would write like how much I did with them, like what I did, how far we oh, went. I thought you were like too much tongue, like one star. No, no, no. <laughs> but the, that that would be a really intriguing list too. But I just really want, like I said, like lists calm me and settle yeah. me. And I think it was a way of saying I did this, like I was here. Mm-hmm. You know, this boy I kissed. This boy I did more than kiss. So he got like one asterisk. You know, after his <laughs> name. <laughs> 
Oh, man, I can't imagine if your parents ever found that list and were like, what is this elaborate system of markings? <laughs> you know, it's interesting because my parents really let me be in a lot of ways. And I do mm-hmm. feel like I'm a much more hovery kind of parent. And, and I think that's very generational where I'll say to my, you know, my kids, like, do you ever have any crushes? You know, and I definitely don't <laughs> want to have, like, we don't have, like, compulsory heterosexuality around here. Uh-huh. So I will never be like, do you like a girl? So I'll just be like, do you have any crushes? Do you have any crushes? Who do you think is attractive? You know, will you tell me when you get one? And they just kind of roll their eyes and they're like, I don't know. No. They're like, and, no, mom, no. <laughs> no, it's not your business, but I can't help myself. And I feel like if someday they end up in therapy and that's the worst thing I did to them, then so be it. I feel like everyone should end up in therapy at some point because it's actually really good for you. Therapy is really good. Right. So I'm not saying that therapy is a bad thing, but I'm saying if it's something, right, I do. I mean, I I, I can't imagine that they won't because I'm hoping that they'll have examined lives and deal Uh with whatever stuff comes their way because life can serve, you know, hand you a lot of bumps. But I think that as as they're complaining about their mom, um, which happens in therapy, uh-huh. inevitably. Um, I, I feel like if, if the worst thing they have to complain about is that I made them eat vegetables every night and um, I cut off screen time a lot and I ask who their crushes are, like that, I will have done well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There are a lot more scarring things you could have done. So exactly. good job. <laughs> but all this to say that I feel like you, if my parents really let me sort of conduct my own dating and sexual life off the radar, off their radar. And Mm -hmm. it really, I made a lot of my own decisions and talked to friends and talked to friends, older sisters and read a lot of books. And I definitely like went into my local indie bookstore in a small town where I grew up. There's just this fabulous indie bookstore that's still there. And I would go and read like the books on, you know, what's happening to my body or, Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know how babies are made. And I just sort of sought out. And so my parents didn't necessarily, they didn't ever censor or ban what I got. They didn't necessarily like give me, I guess my mom gave me our bodies ourselves. So I got that. But I feel like I sought out a lot of this information on my own without them hovering. And I loved that. Mm-hmm. But I can't help hovering. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the answer here. <laughs> oh, man. I was just remembering I had a book called Girl Talk. I think that okay. my, yeah, that taught me like the bodies and all of those things. And I, I remember reading that and being like, oh God, what's happening to me? Oh, thank goodness. It happens to other people. Yes. Uh, but no, I was so, I wish I'd educated myself more. Um, so I was in high school theater and I can't remember if I've mentioned this in another episode, but like my first kiss was like a stage kiss in an audition. Oh, yep. oh. And then like my second kiss was a stage kiss in a play. And then my third kiss was a stage kiss. And by the time I got around to actually kissing a boy for real, I like didn't realize I was supposed to open my mouth while I was doing it because I'd oh. just been doing all these like pecs, and so like it was just it was like a deeply mortifying adolescence in many ways. Wow! <laughs> so all of your like your first three kisses were faux kisses. Yeah, yeah. But did you feel something? No. Like, did you feel like any? As we said, what did I say? Rumblings? <laughs> no, there were no rumblings because we were we were. Yep. Nope. Nope. High school theater, not. Not the place. Well, I there were some there were some attractive people in high school theater. I think I was mostly just worried about putting on the performance and like tilting my head the correct way and right. How do know. I look rather than how do I feel? Yeah, and because the first one was in an audition, I was like, I was so nervous about it. I was like, I am gonna get this part. So- <laughs> and that was your first time. It was my sort first of kiss. Locking lips with a boy. Yeah, I had um I had a boy kiss my hand in eighth grade, and I thought that counted as my first kiss, and I was like really upset. I was like, I, I've been saying, I've been like waiting all this time for my first kiss and it was on the hand. Well, I do feel like there's this time where you just want to kind of get it over with. Yeah. And I do feel like that's what Virginia, at the beginning of The Earth Night About Another Big Around Things, she decides to invite this geeky boy who like plays some kind of, I can't remember now, horn, trombone, trumpet. <laughs> I write these things and I just move on. Um, <laughs> so he, she's on the bus with him and she just decides well the the whole book start both of the novels start with hookup scenes with virginia and froggy in her bedroom hooking up Uh and so the first line of the earth my butt is um froggy welsh the fourth is trying to get up my shirt but then you backtrack (laughs) and you see that she was tired of being the only girl in her mind in america you know who had yet (laughs) to kiss and so she's just like here's froggy 
he's on the bus with me. He seems kind of dorky. He has an hour to kill. I'm inviting him over and I'm just kissing him because I'm sick of not kissing. I just Uh want to get this over with. So I do think that's definitely like how I felt. Like I remember when some boy sort of vaguely kissed my cheek in eighth grade and I felt like, well, it wasn't enough. Like I need to just do this. Let's do this. Get it over with. Come on. But that's why Sebastian was so important in the universe is expanding and so am I because he's not just the dorky, you know, sort of what the cat dragged in. He's like, <laughs> you know, he's he's really, really hunky and sexy. Yeah. And they have real chemistry. Uh-huh. Like, she wants to be making out with him. She is lusting after him, and he's lusting after her. And, and also they have sort of a more of a kind of intellectual compatibility and humor compatibility. Mm-hmm. And that was just so important for me to sort of give that to Virginia after Froggy. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> who was a triumph in the earth my butt because she came so far just to be with him but yeah but it's like but then you, you deserve more. you know earth shattering affection yeah. and lust and love like everyone deserves that and romance mm-hmm. and that and but then what the problem with sebastian is that he also becomes a like forbidden entity mm-hmm. he's not just this lusty hunky guy and Virginia sort of breaking the mold of what you know she felt like she deserved but it turns out that their lives are much more intertwined than they ever imagined and Mm -hmm. that her relationship with him could jeopardize everything with her brother's legal case around the rape because of we find out of who he is so Virginia really does have to then make these difficult decisions between love and lust for this amazing sort of feels like he's a once in a lifetime guy and loyalty to a family who hasn't treated her very well, and mm-hmm. loyalty to a brother who has raped someone. And I feel like that brings up a lot of sort of a side conversation around everything that happened with the Me Too movement this year, Yeah, which was how many people it affects when some, a man or anyone behaves badly, but in this case it was mostly men. You know, how many, all of the second and third degree burns and the ripple effects of not just the person that the man assaults, but the families of the, you know, the families of the people who assault, the families of the people who are victims, the colleagues. Um, you know, I feel like, so in the universe is expanding and so am I, you know, where Virginia's family is affected by the rape, Sebastian's mm-hmm. family is affected by the rape, and people have to really come to terms with how do you love someone who's done something horrible? Yeah. How do you, you know, just, just how does it affect everything that you think? Yeah. And I found it really interesting to read a book from the perspective of the, I mean, it's the the rapist family. She's part of the rapist family and reconciling, like, how do you know that this, this person you've looked up to and envied and loved your whole life is capable of something like this? Um, And I mean, I, I struggled. (laughs) I, I've just like her mother being so critical of Virginia all the time um, and then also being like oh you're jeopardizing your brother's court case and it's like no come on (laughs) your brother did this your brother did this and I I just what what was it like like especially in the era of me too how did you navigate the difficulty of writing about um, Byron her brother in a way that seemed not making him like a complete and utter monster well i think that is a uh, well it's very interesting i think many things one is um i don't think that byron is a complete and utter monster he's not and and i'm not saying that that being raped whether you're raped by a guy in your dorm who's a hunk who's really smart and really charming is any different than being raped by somebody like jumps out at you in an alley like rape Mm -hmm. is rape and it's horrible and it's mm-hmm. damaging. But I don't think that Byron is someone who's going to jump out in alleys and grab people and pin them down. He's sort of... Um, so I don't think that he's a monster 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. I think that he has a lot of sides. And I think the side of him that felt... it got drunk and then felt entitled to take you know, to, to, to hurt someone and to force himself on someone and to, and to have sex with someone against their will is horrible. And it, I really had to think a lot about who Byron is. If he's not a monster 24 hours a day, then who is he? You know, that makes that, that where he's sometimes nice to Virginia 
And mm-hmm. sometimes like backs her up when the parents are, you know, giving her a hard time. And someone sees just funny. And he obviously was like popular in high school and college. So people liked him. There must have been something compelling about his personality. Mm-hmm. Um, but then what are the parts of him that led him to this moment where he thought that he could have sex with someone against their will? And even if they didn't want to. And so I thought about it. So I just tried to create a real person a well-rounded person like he but also to think well he feels really entitled his -hmm. parents have always sort of said like you know you go get it you're so handsome and you're so smart and and you said he's the golden child he's the golden child I feel like the world has really given him carte blanche you know he's Mm -hmm. on the cover of the brochures from Virginia's private school he's on debate team he's on rugby at Columbia Mm -hmm. I picture him winning all these academic awards and leadership awards I just imagine that he has always had an easy paved road so he feels entitled to go ahead and take what he feels is his and he also has this sort of like i said before like an asshole side like he's kind of um for whether whether he's modeling you know his parents like and they have a really judgmental kind of elitist side whether he's modeling them or whether it's something that's organically him or a combination he has this side that that it's not just about sex and sexual fulfillment, but I think about, you know, domination and power, you know, so I, I had, I really thought about what would make him do this thing, but also how do I create a well-rounded person who's not just black and white. And then I also thought, so I also have, I talked a lot with my editor about how Cindy Lowe is my editor at Bloomsbury. And we talked a lot about, you know, how the family is looking at Byron and thinking about him, because I feel like the parents are in the earth and about another background things. They're a bit more in denial when Byron mm-hmm. is um, suspended from college. But by the time there's actually a criminal court case, they have to hire a lawyer and they have to not be in denial. But they also have to say, this is our son and he might go to jail and he might have to register as a sex offender and we're scared. And by in being scared, they end up trying to come to his defense. And Virginia, that's really confusing because she's like, this is not a we situation. We don't have a problem right now. You raped someone. So I tried to show a lot of the nuance of sort of what a family would be going through. I think it is scary when you love someone and they commit a crime and you still love them. And you sort of want, you know what they did was wrong, but you also don't want them to go to jail because that's really scary and, and awful. So... It was, it was, you know, I thought a lot about it. I also, I worked with my editor and I also worked with a psychologist, um, this, this really, really smart woman in Manhattan. And we, she read a manu- the manuscript, we met for coffee, we talked it over, we talked about how, you know, a survivor of rape might, what Byron might have taken away from her and what she might be feeling. Mm-hmm. And so I did work, I, I felt like, just it's so important to get for me it was so important to get it right yeah because it's really big stuff and even though Virginia sort of sees it through humorous eyes sometimes it's really big stuff yeah and I like that she's uh, I like her folks she's like this isn't a we problem mom and she'll be like yeah but like let's not forget he got drunk and forced himself on someone like and that's not okay Um, ever and the fact that yeah and Virginia keeps repeating like it's not okay uh, I did. I like that. Um, and it's just your your characters do come across like so nuanced and like this is a funny book, but with this the very sort of some dark, very dark undertones um, between sort of she's had this sort of lifelong policing of her weight and she has this brother who's done this crime and <laughs> she's here's like, OK, who, how do I discover who I am, become confident in myself while navigating all these like really profoundly awful things in my orbit um i think you did a very good job balancing that and you know sarah i think it's so interesting that you use the word policing because you know in this novel the police show up at their door and arrest byron and it's Mm -hmm. almost like it's true the mom and dad had been policing virginia her entire life about Mm -hmm. her weight what you ate did you scrape out the dough from the inside of the bagel do you want to go to the gym will you drink water instead of you know juice you know this is constant policing when you realize that who really needed policing and who gets the police at his door (laughs) the literal police the literal police was byron like he needed someone to say it's like it's the this weight stuff is just to me such bullshit like let someone be 
you know, encourage them to make healthy choices around food, encourage them to also enjoy food in a similarly sensuous way that we enjoy sex and we enjoy mm-hmm. friendships and we enjoy whatever sunset, you know, good naps, you know, like food should be one of the things on our list of sort of wonderful pleasures that we enjoy. Also get some exercise so your body moves and then your body is your body. And it's just, I felt like it's such bullshit that this family is dwelling so much on this one member of their family who doesn't have the sort of quote unquote Shreve's body type. Yeah. When all along this other member of the family, Byron, has grown into a man who feels like he can hold down a woman and rape her and then Mm -hmm. walk away and go on. And something went very wrong with their parenting and they've been just focusing on the wrong kid and and the wrong things because I think the wrong kid and the wrong things exactly I think women growing up face a lot more of that policing than men in my experience and a lot of it is generational where like our mothers will worry about our weight and put us on diets and things like that because someone did that to them uh, mm-hmm. And it's just sort of like, you don't want your daughter to feel the insecurity that you felt. So if you can like shape her into the perfect fit being early, she'll never have doubts. But and then you don't realize that you're sort of compounding the problem. Um, but yeah, it's this, this policing of like, what do women do with their bodies? Like, do they have pleasure with their bodies? Are their bodies too big? And, and it's that really hyper focus on the female body instead of like, oh, the male mind, you know? Yes, or, like, or the like, male body. like or the, the male, male body. body. Right, and I do feel like men, like if you go to the beach and you see women, I mean, I love going to the beach when women of all shapes and sizes just feel comfortable, you know, which doesn't always happen, but you see women sometimes who don't have like more of the ideal sort of skinny body type will wear like suits that like cover, you know, or, or covers or shorts and mm-hmm. men I see of like, a, and not all men, I know that men have their own body insecurities. They need to feel muscular or big or tall. And there's that, but I often see that men just run around without yeah. a shirt on and are enjoying themselves and are having fun and are not as caught up in their own sort of prison of their own bodies. And I want women to have more of that. I also feel like women like have the policing around their bodies, around you know their sexual pleasure. But I also feel like I used to go visit my we used to visit my grandparents when I was a kid and stay with them. And I have a brother who's a year older than me, and I my grandmother would definitely take me and say like Carolyn, you know you are gonna stay until all the dishes are done. When like ten people would eat, I would have to stand oh. in the kitchen doing dishes or. You know, Carolyn, you're going to practice your violin or Carolyn, you know, you're going to stay out here and make conversation with people. Whereas my brother could like literally they lived in the Caribbean. And so there was these palm trees all around their property. And he would literally be climbing trees, catching lizards, you know, reading books. Yes. (laughs) And I would be, you know, 10, 11, 12 having to do dishes and I remember at some point my brother and I used to walk in where they lived in the Caribbean. They, there was this gorgeous beach and then near it there was a nude beach. And we walked over there when we were about 13 or 14 to sort of see the nude beach together. And um, I remember I was like just vaguely into puberty and I was wearing this really cute tankini, like a tank top. Like a, mm-hmm. a, it was like a bikini but sort of connected at the sides, yeah. whatever. It was really big. It was like four different neon colors. <laughs> and my brother and I walked together over there. And this naked man approached us and sort of ah. took my hand. And it was a nude beach, you know? We were, we were at a nude beach. Wait, he took and your hand? He took my hand and tried to shake my hand and introduce himself to me on the nude beach. And we were like, we got to go. And so we waited back to the main beach. Oh, my God. And that night at dinner, we were telling everyone. And my grandfather, who is a real patriarch, was like, that's it. Carolyn is 14 now. She's no longer going to that beach. She's oh. done. And I remember just feeling so... I was so grossed out by that man, the naked man taking my hand, but I was also interested as a naked man. This is interesting. But um, <laughs> I was grossed out by him taking my hand and not letting it go for a second. But I, I, what I hated was that because of that man's behavior, I was disciplined and I was no longer allowed to go to that beach, but my brother could. And yeah. I think that's, that just bothered me so deeply. Like I didn't do anything but become 14 and yeah. start to get boobs and wear a cute bathing suit. And now I can no longer go to the beach. The funny thing is I could have gone at 11 or 12, you know, but now that I was sort of a sexual interest to men, I was banned from going. And that just bothered me. And I feel like that's why I do what I do. A million of those moments have made me want to write novels that are empowering about 
you know, empowering for teenage girls around their bodies and sexuality and, and, and also address the frustrations of what it feels like to be a young woman in, mm-hmm. a, in a body that suddenly is not just yours, but is a conversation. Yeah, it's like suddenly you become public property in a way. Yep. When yeah. you hit puberty, and I remember 14 also being a delineating marker for me where that's when I started getting really creepy attention. And when my yep. friends started getting pre- creepy attention, um, and I mean, I, I did get some before that too, but this sense that all of a sudden you belong to any man who walks down the street and wants to comment on you or the people mm-hmm. like I've been followed and stalked and all of these things. And like, not only that, but then your parents are getting really hyper vigilant about whether or not you're having sex. And like, I wasn't anywhere near ready to have sex in high school. And yet it was like on, it seemed like that was what everyone was so terrified I would do. And I'm like, maybe we should focus on the other things that are upsetting me or the other problems I'm dealing with, which are very real, instead of all of a sudden, why is why is my body and what I do with my body a, a public a public mm-hmm. thing and also like why would parent why are parents so focused on when teenagers especially girls have sex i feel like it should be there's this thing you know sex it feels really pleasurable if you're ready and you're safe mm-hmm. if you're not ready it's not very much fun and it can be really devastating you know if it, if you're if you're not safe you can get pregnant or you can get stds but I feel like there shouldn't be a time at which you're, it's like, let's, it, it's an, an, you know, it's an ongoing, I feel like, I felt like that with my kids consuming books and media, with my kids, um, just any steps they've had is like, let's, you're a unique person and let's figure out when you're ready and let's not have mm-hmm. it be something sort of hard limits or shame or rules. Yeah. So. Yeah, because like, you're right, the fixation on when kids are having sex and all of that like came across kind of like really creepy. <laughs> As mm-hmm. someone who was growing up, I'm like, why is everyone so obsessed with this? Like, this is really unsettling. And I'm when I become a parent, I mean, if I become a parent, like, I would want to be the kind of parent that has conversations about consent and boundaries ongoing and then be the kind of person who's like, all right, like, I know you guys are getting to be of an age where you're thinking about sex. I want to get people on birth control if they think they're ready. I want to make sure there's condoms around the house. And I want to make sure we know you do it when you're comfortable and no sooner. You do it when your partner is comfortable. And then here are the steps you take to have protection. And and beyond that, like, it's your body. And just don't don't end up with all the complexes I did. <laughs> right. I, I agree. Yeah, there's the most wonderful conversation in... Uh, the novel Americana, which is one of my favorite novels I read last year. Mm. And it's it's called Americana, like with an H at the end. And she's a Nigerian novelist who's just so smart and such a beautiful writer. And it takes place both in Nigeria and in the U.S. and a little bit in England. And um, But in the first section that takes place in Nigeria, there are these two, you know, a, a, you know, a girl and a boy or whatever, young man and young woman, who are probably 15, 16, 17, and they fall in love. And they're, um, they're hanging out a lot at the guy's mom's house. And he has a single mom who's a professor at the local college. And she's just this really cool single mom who's like, this is the kind of mom of a teenager that I want to be. And she basically says to them exactly what you said. I'll have to like, I, I've read the novel once, I own it. So I'll have to go read it. I'll have to go look at the passage again. Uh-huh. But she basically says something like, guys, like you're probably getting close to having sex. You know, I think they're always hanging out, watching movies. It's like, it's like their one great love. That sort of their, their love story sort of persists through the novel. Uh-huh. But um, she's, I think she basically says like, let's, you know, get some condoms, go do, I, I can't remember exactly what she says, but she has a very frank conversation around like, this is going to happen soon. So you got to be safe. You got to see the doctor. You got to wear uh-huh. condoms, whatever she says. But I feel like she also waited until the moment when her son brought home a girlfriend that he, you know, that they were getting closer. And then she just said it in a very blunt, matter-of-fact way that wasn't embarrassing. Mm-hmm. It still seems like the kind of thing uh, at the time people are going to be like, Mom, oh my God, this is mortifying. And then you look back and you're like, thank you. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Though it's all building blocks, though. Because like you said before, that you want your conversations about sexual consent with your, you know, hopefully, you know, future kids to be sort of ongoing. I feel like the first conversation you have with your kids and their friends, like the first frank, honest conversation shouldn't be like, look, you look like you guys are about to have sex. I mean, you start these conversations at 
you know, five, six, seven, when the friends are over and you're like, guys, yeah. like you have to stop screen time because that's not what we do all the time around here. Or like we'll have um, a friend over for a play date. Like my younger son will have a friend over and the friend maybe has different relationships with their siblings. And he'll be like, let's gang up on your brother. Your brother's stupid. You know, and I'll pull my son and be like, you know what? Maybe in other families we do that. But in our family, like my sons always have each other's backs. Mm-hmm. We are, we do not do ganging up around here. So I feel like there's like ongoing conversations in general with like helping your kids and their peers set rules in our house for what our family does that then I hope will build into a point where I would feel comfortable then springing this, you know, this, the sex conversation on, you know, my sons and their, you know, future partners. Um, so mm-hmm. I hope that that is just, it's like a relationship. It, it's, it's sort of always like, kind of keeping that dialogue active, whatever yeah. stage they're at. Yeah, I love it. And so it sounds like you really care about the well-being of teenagers, both your own and others, and that's why you write YA. Are you are you going to, are you working on anything right now? Like what's coming out next? Yes, I actually am working. I just finished a novel. Um, I turned it in a week and a half ago about, uh, it's a middle grade novel. So it's younger. I don't usually write for a younger audience. That it's a middle grade novel. It's about an 11 year old girl with sensory processing disorder. Mm-hmm. And it's called Not If I Can Help It. And it, it's going to be published by Scholastic. It will come out next summer, summer 2019. And it's about a girl, you know, who has this disability where she just doesn't really feel comfortable in her skin. External stimuli really bothers her, change mm-hmm. really bothers her. And then change comes knocking at her door when her dad who's single ends up falling in love with her best friend's mom Mm. and so she is really faced with this brand new love relationship in her house and her best friend suddenly becoming her stepsister and she has to deal with that and really sort of work on you know kind of coming out about her disability because she's very ashamed about it and keeps it private so I'm working, I just finished that, and I'm just starting, right now, I'm starting a new young adult novel, um, a new YA, that is about, a lot about grieving and grief. I lost a very good friend last year, and I feel like oh, I've sorry. been thinking all year about sort of what it means to live and what it means to die, and so just thinking that one through right now. Yeah. Um, it's, it's good that, it, I mean, YA is... I think a, a misunderstood genre by people who don't read it because they think oh it's for kids uh, and you read it and you're like no this is through the eyes of a young protagonist encountering the big issues that everyone struggles with throughout their life so right. maybe it's like your first brush with grief or your first brush with sex or anything like that and you can sort of deconstruct and unpack what that means when you have a protagonist who's encountering it for the first time right I agree but I think that it's um it's, I find that YA novels are some of the best novels out there. The mm-hmm. writing is really clean and to the point and beautiful. And the authors are incredibly, some of the most, as I said, like the most talented authors out there, but they've chosen to focus on, like you said, like the firsts, a lot mm-hmm. of the firsts. And it's not just for sex. It might be first time that you thought differently about all the sexual relationships you've had <laughs> you know mm-hmm. so it's just a lot of first time you've really differentiated from your parents and thought about who you are you know it's just a lot of really fascinating themes to explore in the yeah. world of YA and I, I remember reading on your bio you you felt like you read so much when you were growing up it was sort of like books saved you in a way and, and I definitely felt the same way I was reading voraciously my entire life and that was just the the books that would kind of inspire me and give me courage and and help me deal with life are still some of my favorites even though like I've moved on to reading adult things absolutely do you remember what some of your favorites were when you were a teenager yes Um, what were they well when I was a teenager so it's like there I first read the series in middle school I loved the song of the lioness series by um, Tamara Pierce yeah which is yeah and then she had another one which is like the wild magic series I really loved this book called um, Mara, Daughter of the Nile, which was okay. about like a, a double agent spy in the ancient Egyptian court. 
fabulous um gosh what else i read so many things Mm -hmm. uh, but those ones in particular stood out because it was a young female protagonist conquering the world on her own terms um and every time i struggled with something in like i've actually might have started reading song of the lioness in elementary school so remember when i would i would face a challenge i'd be like well this is just like the time that olana had to learn how to sword fight and she wasn't very good at it so she kept practicing until she got better at it and like that would be my reminder like be like olana today <laughs> wow yes and i feel yeah. like in that way the novels you read when you're young really do um just resonate so deeply and stay with you and help define mm-hmm. you. I mean, I think there's a very few novels I've read in my adulthood. And there are some, like, as I said, like Americana is a novel that just stuck with me so deeply. But in general, they are really wonderful, smart things to read, you know, maybe for a week in your life, but you still are who you are as an adult. But as a teenager or a child, like some of the novels you read are like, life-changing like this Mm -hmm. is who I am this is who I want to be you know these are the so you're you know reaching an audience when they're defining who they are it's it's pretty powerful do you remember what the books were that inspired you oh of course so as I said before I read all of the Judy Bloom books and Uh those inspired me because they were just so real and they didn't pull any punches and I loved them and I loved several of the books by Lois Lowry. She wrote like Autumn Street and A Summer to Die and Find a Stranger, Say Goodbye. And then for the younger readers, the Anastasia Krumpnik series about this really smart sort of Jewish girl and um, who was just not like, she was was a feminist, you know, and (laughs) whatever, 12. But I feel like Lois Lowry was just such a beautiful writer. Well, she is, she's still alive. But she, her writing was gorgeous and she really gave voice to smart kids who had a lot going on in their brains beyond just what you see. And I loved that. Like I remember her kids were, the kids she wrote about were artists or photographers and really looked at like visual composition and even if they were seven or 12 or 13. And I just loved how much she gave voice to the complexities of children's brains. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm now I'm just like going trying to remember all my my childhood loves <laughs> of all oh the books I'm like... so I remember this novel I read you'd asked in the beginning when we were just chatting and you mentioned romance novels oh yeah and I remember this novel I read oh my god I must have been about 13 or 14 and I think it was called like valley of dreams or river of dreams oh. river of dreams and it was about this love affair in Rio <laughs> De Janeiro in Brazil and it was like I, I can still remember the cover and it was like a true juicy romance with sex Ooh. and Rio as the backdrop and you know it just like a woman with like boobs spilling out of her shirt on the cover <laughs> or out of her dress she doesn't wear no one wears shirts and um oh I just remember loving that I don't know how I stumbled upon it but I read it. And then I remember reading Clan of the Cave Bear and all oh, yeah. those like Neanderthal romance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah. loved those. And she was, what was her name? Ayla or something like that? Yeah, she I think so. She was such a like beautiful, strong, kind of a Katniss sort of protagonist, you know, like from Hunger Games. Like she was just like beautiful and could do anything, but also like love sex with Oh my gosh, what was the guy's name? Like John Delar or something like that? It's like cave sex. But it was a great romance, but also a strong woman. Yeah. A clan of the cave bear. I'd completely forgotten that one. Yes. <laughs> I haven't. Well, um, amazing as it seems, we're actually coming up on time. So uh, I thought we'd jump into a series of 10 rapid fire questions. These are just sort of fun, offbeat questions to um, hopefully get to know you a little better. Sure. So what is the strangest or most unique thing in your workspace? Oh, interesting. I guess I'm looking at my desk right now, and I have a desk that's right next to my eight-year-old. He has a desk, and um, he has a water pistol on his desk (laughs) and a a recorder. And um, I have – so I don't know if that's strange, but I think it really speaks to how much my life – is integrated with my kids. Yeah. I think you need to get your own water gun or maybe get like Nerf guns, matching ones, and then you can oh like shoot each other while you're so working. so many Nerf guns around our house. Yes, I could. And I, <laughs> yes, so I'm looking at this little green water pistol right now. It's kind of dripping, actually. I should move it away from my laptop. <laughs> 
Okay. Uh, is there anything you irrationally hate? Goat cheese. Goat cheese. I hate goat cheese so much. I've been a vegetarian <laughs> my entire life. Like since I was four, I declared myself a vegetarian. And oh, I would wow. literally eat like 10 hamburgers before I had one bite of goat cheese. Wow. I think goat cheese is, it will make me hurl. Like I would literally throw it violently if goat cheese came by, you know, came my way. But you like other cheese? I love cheese, but goat cheese is just disgusting. I literally, like, if it crosses my lips, I start heaving. Okay. In, in public. Yes. I'm glad goat you cheese, had an immediate goat answer cheese should not ex- Goat cheese should not exist. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The zombie apocalypse is happening, and you can only save one work of fiction. What is it? Oh, boy. Um, hmm. But you know what I would do is I would actually bring a blank notebook and a pen and a really long notebook and I would just write. Yeah. Write my own story. Yes. Yes. That's a good answer. Yes. Because I couldn't just pick one. I mean, I think about how many novels have spoken to me at different times in my life. And I'm guessing that when I'm really anxious and nervous and unsettled as I would be in a zombie apocalypse, I couldn't just like curl up in a hammock with a good book. I'd mm-hmm. want to... Right. So I'd bring a notebook. Okay. If you could have dinner with any three women, either historical or currently living, who would they be? Okay. Michelle Obama. I just Uh saw her speak last week and I was just blown away. So we've got Michelle Obama. We've got, um, um, it's not going to be Michelle Obama three times. So I'll have to think of (laughs) other ones. This just happened in another interview we did where we were like, Michelle Obama, and we're like, yes, we know she's basically three people. Um. <laughs> okay, let's see. There's got to be some amazing... Um, I would throw in... Okay, I'm trying to think of women historically. Um, female filmmakers, maybe. Ooh. Um, oh, maybe like Diane Keaton. She seems like she'd be a lot of fun at dinner and interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe Judy Bloom. I've had dinner with a ton of times, but she's always a great dinner companion. Mm-hmm. Um, the author of Americana. I would add Chimamanga Adichie. Um, wait, wait, now now we're at four. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. okay. Well, one of them's going to not, like, an RSVP, no. Okay, okay. <laughs> Is New York, like, L.A., where you invite people and you just know that most of them aren't going to come, so you're like, it's fine? <laughs> you know, not as much, which is interesting. Oh. People show up, generally. Wow. It's, and, and I've been in L.A. where there's a lot of, like, the let's meet for coffee, and then no one, ever, you know, and then the coffee never happens. So you're like, oh, we're supposed to just say we meet for coffee, so we've said it. But we yeah. don't actually have to show up. I think a lot of the LA problems are the the traffic. You're like, I'm not going to go 45 minutes to hang out with you. And everyone's always so busy. But it's definitely a thing where you're like, oh, well, you know, 20 people have RSVP'd yes out of the 60 I invited, which probably means 10 will come. Exactly. <laughs> right. It's a certain mathematical equation for like how much food should we order. Uh-huh. All right. Would you rather be forgotten or hatefully remembered? Forgotten. Mm-hmm. All right. Who was your first celebrity crush? Hmm, maybe Jason Bateman. <laughs> Jason Bateman. <laughs> yeah. Or uh, oh, George Michael. George Michael. <laughs> oh, my God. R.I.P. I, oh, Billy Joel. <laughs> oh, my God. I had these, like, just, uh, but George Michael. I just felt like if we were in, I mean, obviously, like, it wouldn't have worked out because, you know, he's gay or he was gay. But I had this I had this fantasies that we would, like, meet and fall in love and it would be perfect. And he would, like, see me for who I was at 14. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The next one is a game of kiss, marry, kill. So you have to kiss one, you have to marry one, and you have to kill one. Okay. And we have Idris Elba, Jason Momoa, and Chris Hemsworth. Um... Okay, I don't know who they are. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Um, do you watch any of the Marvel superhero movies? My son watches all of them. I can pull him into the room, but I don't know. Oh, no. okay. Um, I don't. I don't know if your your son would have opinions on which one you should kiss or marry. Um, uh, do you watch much? So Jason Momoa was in Game of Thrones. He was called Drogo. 
Okay. Um, he's Aquaman now. <laughs> I will admit to you that in the last few years, I, at the end of a day of parenting and writing and talking and running around New York City, I literally want to curl up at the book. And uh-huh. so I have this abyss of like social, <laughs> of, of sort of cultural awareness that's embarrassing. And I just proved myself. So I feel like I don't get a kiss. I don't okay. get to marry someone, and there's certain. I guess I don't get to kill anyone either. Yeah, I mean, it would be pretty harsh to kill them just because you don't know who they are. <laughs> right, and I was almost tempted to. You know, when you go in the voting booth and you like know who you're voting for president and like uh-huh. governor, but then you get to like the bottom of the thing and you're like, I don't know, so I'm just gonna vote for my party. You know, <laughs> I'm just gonna click a bunch of things really quickly. So I don't want to do that with kissing. So I should really think about what that was voting to. um all right then so the game is a bit of a bust (laughs) it was a total bust and that's completely my fault but i i will i will go i will go confer with my son and find out what his advice is on kiss me kill he'd be like mom you're married you can't (laughs) like wait don't leave me (laughs) (laughs) okay uh if we went out to a bar together what is your drink of choice and that can be alcoholic or non-alcoholic okay coffee Coffee. I'd be yeah. an embarrassing person. I don't drink. I get really severe migraines, mm-hmm. and so oh. not only do I can I not answer your kiss, Mary Kill. I'm I'm the really, yeah. I don't drink, and um, I get really severe migraines. So I'm really careful about like alcohol because that can mm-hmm. trigger one. So I'm the one at the bar who's like not at the bar. I'm like, oh, let's go get coffee. You know, uh-huh. let's have water. Um, it's a really interesting perspective because you really get to see people sort of descend into drunken stupors and you're not. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a really interesting perspective on the world. Yeah. yeah, I don't think it's embarrassing at all. We we have, um we actually had lots of authors who say they don't drink at all. And they're always like, oh, this is a little embarrassing, but I don't drink. It's like, no, like, you, you know, don't I drink. Like, like, it's, it's not, not embarrassing. Yeah, it's not embarrassing. <laughs> so I'm not saying it's embarrassing. I'm just saying it's like probably boring for your question, but it's not embarrassing. <laughs> and I actually think that I talk about it with my kids a lot that like, it's not like drinking makes you cool or not drinking makes you not cool. You know, it's just, there's, that's not true. Like you don't buy into that stuff. And so Mm -hmm. I feel that very strongly actually. Yeah. All right. What Hogwarts house would you be in? Oh, I'm, uh, I've done it. I'm a Gryffindor. So we've done the Pottermore, um, and we've done it. Yeah. And then we, I think we've done Buzzfeed. Like we've done a ton of different tests. So Uh yeah, I'm a Gryffindor. Me too. You are? Yay. Yes. Yes. Uh, do you remember, did you take the Patronus test? No, because okay. by the time we, no, we had to create many new email addresses so that my <laughs> kid could do it. And um, and so he found his Patronus. I think he was like a squirrel or something like that. Oh, I'd love to be yeah. a squirrel. I got I like know. a, I got a stoat. What's that? <laughs> it's like a weasel of some kind. Oh, oh all these little tree animals. <laughs> Okay, and then the last rapid-fire question, would you rather have invisibility or super strength? Hmm, super strength. Yeah. Because I know, yeah, I'd love to like, be able to like, lift trains off people or something like that. But I think that invisibility, I know that given who I am, which is that I'm a total eavesdropper and a snoop <laughs> because I just love knowing everything about everyone, that I would use the invisibility to listen in on conversations and then I know that I would hear things I wouldn't want to hear and I would be really hurt because I also am sensitive and have a thin skin. So I wouldn't want to hear people talking about me. So, and I, but I wouldn't be able to help myself. So I would rather lift trains off people or do whatever, you know. Do you have, have like strength. a, do you have like a superhero identity you would take on if you're going to lift trains off people? Mm, oh, you mean like a certain cape or hair color or something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Or like the incredible, you know, cat woman except that's a real one. <laughs> oh, no no I mean just like me only better you know <laughs> something like that <laughs> super name is Carolyn Mackler but better me only better yeah <laughs> was that like a hair coloring commercial at some point like I have no me idea. wash away the gray like me only better yeah <laughs> I don't know um, okay, well, great. Uh, the book is The Universe is Expanding and So Am I, and it's available now. And where can readers find you online if they want to learn more? Yeah, so they can find me at my author website, carolynmackler.com. They can find me on Twitter and Instagram, and um, I don't 
post very much because I'm really bad about social media. <laughs> uh, but but I'm there sometimes, but you know, erratically. Yeah. And what was your Twitter handle? <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea. <laughs> like Carolyn Mackler books or something like that. I I really. I You're doing really, great. No, I, it's fine. I really exist in my own little orbit of like, I write my novels, I take care of my boys, I hang out with my husband, and I lie on the floor and hug my dog. And that's about my orbit. And I know Twitter's out there and I have to post sometimes to have a social media identity, but I have no idea. Okay. Well, I found it. It's a, uh, it's <laughs> Carolyn Mackler. Is your Twitter handle? Wait, what's your dog's name? What kind of dog? My dog. Oh, thank you for finding it. That was really savvy. Um, <laughs> you like typed it into the search. I um, did. My dog, and then Instagram, I think, is then Carolyn Mackler Books. Okay. Um, my dog's name is Maple, like Maple Sugar, mm-hmm. and she is a mini golden doodle, and <gasps> she shows up on Instagram a bit promoting oh my, my books. I'm going to immediately look up your Instagram after this call because, like, golden doodles are so cute, and a mini one? Like how many? She's like 27 pounds. So her mom is this like beautiful, you know, dumb, full-sized golden retriever (laughs) as, you know, friendly and sweet. And her dad, it was this like shrewd little, you know, seven pound or nine pound (laughs) mini poodle. And so she's just sort of loving, you know, friendly, not brilliant, but just loving and loyal. And she's perfect. Oh, that's so sweet. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. This is fun. Thank you. It was really fun. Thanks for having me on. Of course.